Okay, you will see on your outline that we're looking at chapters 25 to 31. Not reading at all, folks. Uh, But we're starting in Exodus 25 and then we're going to jump forward to Hebrews um, in a little while. So Exodus 25, just reading up to verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver and bronze, blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold moulding around it. Cast four gold rings for it, and fasten them to its four feet, with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on each end, and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. There, above the cover... Between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant Law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. And then if you flip over towards the back of the Bible into Hebrews, we're going to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 1, just reading to verse 15. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna. Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, 
which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that led to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Thanks, Sherry. G'day, folks. Lovely to have you along today. If you're new or visiting, my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really good to have you along. Uh, Youth Church, that's your cue, though, to head out. The rest of us, we are going to hang out in that section of Exodus, and we'll dip into that bit of Hebrews as well. If you don't own a Bible... There's a couple on the back table. They're running hot at the moment. So if you don't own one, go and grab one and write your name in it. We want you to have God's word in front of you. If you don't own it, it's yours, right? Yeah? That's, that's what I want to say to you. But right now, um, we're going to pray and then we'll dive in. Let's, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you that you reveal yourself through it to us. And we pray now that as we read this, which seems so strange for our ears, that we would genuinely understand it so that we might generally be able to apply it in right-fitting fashion through Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Alrighty, have you ever had a conversation with someone who's building their own house, their dream house, the one they've always imagined and built with Lego as a kid, you know, that sort of person? That person is so excited and so deeply invested that they just want to tell you every single detail, blow by blow, describing the design elements of why they went for the big tiles, not the little tiles in the bathroom, or why they've gone for the, to the, the choice of colours. It's not quite off-white, it's not beige, it's, it's not quite ivory, but, you know. And from the, the blinds on the windows to the watering system in the garden, they want to give you the details in the minutia. So, so clearly excited, but so very, very difficult to be excited about as the listener. In fact, not just difficult to hear, but much less difficult to care about. Have you, have you had that sort of experience personally? You know, you're building their dream house? Sorry about that, but you're boring. <laughs> or have you ever spent time with a bride-to-be? You know, someone planning their fairy tale wedding, wanting the day to be just perfect. Again, this is, I'm not thinking of anyone, I'm sorry. But wanting that day to be perfect, wanting to control things down to the finest details. And not just the colour of the bridesmaids' dresses, but the colours worn by any other woman there. And their accessories. And where they stand. What time they arrive. Who they speak to. And how they greet the bride when she arrives. A genuine bridezilla. Have you ever had that experience? Painful to say the least. 
Or what about just even witnessing the interactions, maybe in a shop or a restaurant or a hotel, when an over-entitled customer berates an employee, an over-entitled customer inflated by a false, false sense of their own importance? You know how it sounds? It starts with that, do you know who I am? I ordered sparkling water, not still. This coffee is too hot. This coffee is now too cold. I demand to see the manager. You know that sort of one? I mean, it's galling to witness. It's even cringeworthy to imagine. We're looking at Exodus 25 to 31 today. And it's tempting to think as we read this, it will be tempting to think that somehow God fits into one of those three categories. The over-enthusiastic builder. Or the over-controlling diva slash bride-to-be. Or the over-entitled hobnob making lunatic demands of everyone else because of a sense of overflated importance. It'll be tempting to think this, friends, but it's not so. Because what we hear described here, what we hear, it is in Exodus, it is God's demands for Israel in terms of a building project. The tabernacle we heard just means like a tent or a dwelling place. And God will give them a specific pattern for a specific place. And God will make demands on a particular group of people to serve in that tabernacle, the priests. And God will make demands about what these priests are to do in the tabernacle. He, he, will, he will govern their practice. In fact, that's how we'll work through this section under those headings. If you've got an outline, if you don't, go grab one. These are the headings, the, the tabernacle, the place or the pattern, the priests and the practice. And though God makes demands, make no mistake about that. God is making demands here. It's not as an arrogant, pompous, overinflated tyrant slash diva. It's as a merciful, loving creator God who makes demands so he can dwell with his people. You've got to get this right. He makes demands in order to be able to live with his people peaceably. In other words, it is good for Israel that God would choose to dwell with them to live in a right relationship with them. But as we'll see in this section, because of who God is and because of who Israel is, this is not a straightforward, uh, it's not a straightforward affair. In fact, it's today that we'll sort of get the full orb of our Exodus series. You'll notice that our whole title has been called Exodus, the God who delivers, the God who demands, the God who dwells. Here we're starting to sort of feel the, the full weight of that, the full orb of this. The God who delivers Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, who delivers them out of all sorts of pickles in the desert. The God who demands through the Ten Ten Commandments, through the Book of the Covenant, we covered some of that last week, who gives laws for Israel's flourishing so that their relationship between not just God and them but each other is going well. And now we see the God who dwells. And it is, folks, that I want you to be convinced of today, the big idea, if you will, is that for all its grandeur, for all the seeming pomp and ceremony of the tabernacle, And it is impressive. It still only provides a temporary solution. It still only provided a temporary solution for God to live with Israel. In fact, we'll see that the tabernacle, with all its practices, were suboptimal at best. Which underscores the necessity for a better permanent solution if anyone's going to be able to permanently and peaceably live with God. That's where we're going to get to. But let's turn to the text itself. As I said, have your finger in Exodus 25 we're going to hang out a fair bit in around this area let's have a look at it first because what i want to do there is look at the the place or the pattern of the tabernacle and i sort of want to skim you through some of the big big elements of this part of the uh of the text 
Before before we actually start anything, have a look in 25. Have a look at 25, 1 to 7, and notice that the significance of the materials that are brought to, uh, to build the tabernacle. Have a look at it there. It's, it talks about, uh, what's that? Offerings you to receive. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarn, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, and, and any other type of durable leather. Acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spice for the anointing oil, for fragrant incense, onyx stones and gems to be mounted. This is, do you notice what's, there's no um, like, I don't know, you've got a bit of spare twine lying around, you can bring that, or, you know, a couple of sheets of iron, anyone got rid of that? Yeah, we'll have that. No, 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 it's all rare and expensive stuff, which begs the question, these are a bob of blokes that have just been, you know, a people who have just been freed from slavery. Where'd they get that stuff? It's like, oh, left the, you know, the jewels in my other toga. No. Where did they get this? They got this from Egypt itself. In fact, go back to uh, um, Exodus 12, 36. Look at it really quickly there. It was here where God is providing even then the stuff that they would, prov- that they would actually produce to build the tabernacle. That as they left Egypt, they asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing because God, Yahweh, had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people and they gave them what they asked for. They plundered the, Egypt- the Egyptians. And here it is now. God has provided for them to provide. Wow, that's amazing. And why is it necessary? It's because it's not just any old meeting place that they're building here. This is a royal court. This is a royal court for the king of kings. It's not a backyard warrior sort of job. It's not the, uh, you know, something done on the cheap a la Dale Kerrigan from the castle. I'm going to put a patio on hold, waiting for some cheap cladding. You know, that one? No, it's not like that. And so we see God not just providing the materials here, but he provides the pattern and even then the skill. In fact, I want you to notice this. Notice he gives the materials earlier on. He gives them the pattern and even the skill. In fact, have a look at chapter 25, verse 8. He says to them, make exactly Make it exactly like I show you. He has given them the precise pattern and then he gives them the skill to be able to enact that or to play that pattern out. In fact, have a look at how many times the idea of skilled workmanship is noticed. Look at 26 verse 1. Look at 28 verse 3. Look at 28 verse 6 and 15. In fact, just read for me really quickly. Have a look at uh, Exodus 31, 1 to 6. Notice the idea of the skilled workmanship. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I've chosen Bezael, son of Uri, son of Ur, of the tribe of Judah, and I filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom and with understanding, with knowledge and all kinds of skill, to make artistic designs for works in gold and silver and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in the wood, and to engage in all kinds of craft. Moreover, I've appointed Aholiab, son of Azimach, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I've given him all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you. You see here, God is not just providing the materials, not just the pattern, but even the skill to get the job done. It's phenomenal. And why is it necessary? Why is it necessary that God would do this? I mean, there's several reasons. First and foremost, God is God. By definition, his plan will be superior by default. Improve on that. No, you can't. But there's a second reason I want to dig a little bit more into. It's because of the symbolism about everything in the pattern that God gives. It's to remind Israel and because of them or through them, remind us significant things about God himself. In fact, go back to chapter 25 now. Let's have a look at some of the things that they created or that they were to make. The Ark of the Covenant, for example. Exodus 25, 10 to 22. Essentially, it's sort of like a box at the very center of the tabernacle, the tent. 
But it's not just any old box. It's a box of pure gold. It's a box of acacia wood, an expensive type of wood covered in pure gold to house physical reminders of Yahweh's miraculous dealings with Israel. We learnt there in 2516, it's to to carry the stone tablets, the the law given to uh, Moses by God, inscribed with the finger of God, put them in the box. In fact, later on in Hebrews, we read that it's the jar of manna, describing God's, or reminding them of God's generous provision, 40 years of bread in the desert. Put a jar of that in there. And Aaron's staff that budded, reminder of the miraculous power with which he delivered them from slavery. Put that in there. And this box is to go in a place called the Holy of Holies, a room within a room. Put it in there. It's to be the very center of the tabernacle, the place that I'll meet with you. And look to it at the, at the, at the ark. Look at the, the cover of the ark. And notice the significance of the cherubim there. We heard it mentioned a thousand times over. Cherubim is just the, the plural of cherub. You've got more than one cherub, you've got cherubim. Right uh, what is that? What is this? We don't understand what cherub, cherubs are. You know when you describe little, little babies as little cherubs? No! You know the last time cherubim are mentioned in the Bible? It's in Genesis 3.24. They are sword, flaming sword-wheeling killers. Oh, he's a darling little cherub. Get out of that room if there's one of those in there. Right? <laughs> the cherubim are here. They are like bodyguards. They are barring the way of access to God. That's why when God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden in Genesis 23, 24, he sets cherubim with flaming swords to guard the way back. They are the bodyguards barring access to Yahweh. You cannot meet with God without going past the cherubim and good luck in that. This is fundamental to the pattern of the tabernacle. More on this later. Have a look as we keep whizzing through 25. Have a look there. The the significance of the table and the lampstand uh, described in chapter 25, 23 to 40. The bread of the presence in verse 30. God's ongoing presence. Make sure there's bread on that table all the time because God's always in. Or the lampstand in verse 39. I mean, let me gloss over a lot of this. Not only the intricate detail, the beauty, maybe even the significance of the buds and the blossoms, future significance. I'm going to skip over that for a second. Just look at the fact that a talent of gold was used to make a lampstand. That's like 34 kgs of gold. At today's market value, 3.4 million on a lampstand. lampstand. Wowzers, trousers. That's a lot. And not just the lampstand there, but there's the ongoing idea of make sure it's burning from evening to morning every night, chapter 27, verses 20 to 21. Always have it there, a perpetual reminder that God is present even in the dark. That's a great reminder for Israel, isn't it? doesn't get much darker than in the desert. But you ought to have a light on always to remind you of God's presence, perpetual presence there in the tabernacle. And we're moving now away from the Holy of Holies, the room within the room, outside of even the holy place where the lampstand and the, bread, the showbread are. We're going now to the outer court. Chapter, 20, uh, chapter 27 talks about the outer court, away from the tent itself. There's an altar for a burnt offering. We'll come back to that. But what we notice here is it's less precious metals, bronze and the like, that are used out here. Likewise, in the courtyard, it's still finely twisted linen, but they're bronze bases and silver hooks in chapter 27. All we're trying to see here is that the most significant part, the most precious place is in the center and moving out less significance if you like. But I don't want you to miss this and have a look. There should be a, a temple layout there. There's still only one entrance in. 
Very significant. This tabernacle, this place where you can meet with God, there's still only one entrance in, 27.14. Now, there's so much we could talk about this, but I want to talk about the significance a little bit of the, just a couple of points of the pattern and the place and the materials. What does it reveal about God? I mean, don't miss the, the idea here that this is a royal court that's being built. This is the place for not just a king, but the king of kings. That's why the colors are blue and purple and red. They're royal colors. Don't miss that. The significance of God being amongst their midst demands the finest materials available, possible. I I remember listening to someone there recently talking about the Queen's last visit to Australia. There was months of training for those who would meet her about how to meet her, how to greet her, how if you happen to be eating next to her, that when she took her last mouthful, you put your knife and fork down, you'd finish too. Those sort of things, the royal protocols. Months of training because you're in the presence of royalty. If that's true for the queen, how much more true is it to be careful and uh, deliberate about your meeting with God? His perfection, his holiness is utmost. Relating to him is not just a free-for-all. There's a specific entrance. There are curtains separating where you can go and where you can't go. There are cherubim with, there are cherubim standing guard. Even twisted into the curtain of the holy place, cherubims embroidered there. A, a perpetual reminder that this place is guarded. It's important to see this. God demands all these things, not because he's a tyrant or a diva, but because he desires to dwell. In fact, God is keeping his promise of seeking to, refer, to reverse the effects of the fall. When Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, when they barred access to God, God is now graciously reversing that. He's providing a way for them to come back in, but it's not just come as you are. In fact, it raises some important questions. Who can approach God in his dwelling place? Question one, and how must they approach him? Question two. The simple answer is question one, who must, not just anyone. And question two, not just any old how. In fact, move now with me to, to chapter 28 as we sort of scan here and we, we move to look at the priests of the tabernacle. So it's 28.1 that Aaron and his sons are singled out to be priests before Yahweh. That is, these are the men that will be to mediate or to serve God on behalf of the people. Now, I'm going to skim a fair bit, but let's have a look here. The, the garments they wear are to be sacred, verse 2. Again, excuse me, the skilled nature of the workmanship in preparing their garments, the specific pieces are mentioned, the specific colors, royal colors, verse 5. And each piece has significance. I want to deal with a couple. The ephod, similarly royal colored, skilled. Verse 9, have a look at it there, 28. Engraved with the names of Israel, the tribes of Israel on them. Symbolically representing the whole nation. Verse 12, on his shoulders, the priest who ministered before Yahweh was to represent all of Israel, bearing them on his shoulders. And similarly with the breastpiece in chapter 28, verses 15 to 30. Among other things, notice the four rows of three gems, four times three when I went to school was 12. Is that correct? 12 tribes of Israel, one gem per, uh, per Israel, uh, Israeli tribe. Verse 29, it says they're bearing the names of Israel on his heart. Now, just get the significance of this. In fact, I think we can. You think about it. Who goes down to the Anzac Parade and sees little Johnny wearing granddad's medals? 
It's got that kind of symbolism behind it. Something very solemn, something very significant and important in the symbolism here. Just like Johnny wearing the medals of his granddad who fought in World War II. Or it's here, it's the mediator, it's the priest that is chosen to represent on his shoulders, to represent over his heart the nation of Israel as he ministers to God. Significant. It's really significant. Don't miss it. But more significant than that even... It's not just wearing these sacred garments. It's not, that's not enough to make these people fit to even approach God. Did you get that? In fact, I want to quickly move away from 28 now. I want to move skimming through chapter 29, moving away from the what or the, the place and the pattern of the tabernacle and past the who of the tabernacle service, past the priests now to the how of the service in the tabernacle. How this service is made possible, the practice of relating to Yahweh through the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, as Yahweh calls it. And notice that in the descriptions of some of these other priestly garments that are to be worn in actually 2028, I don't want to look at the, what they're made of so much, but why they're wearing them. In fact, have a look at chapter 28 again, verses 31 to 35, right at the end there. 38, sorry, 28, 31 to 35. Make the robe of the ephod entirely out of blue cloth, with an opening for the head at its center, they shall be a woven. Uh, there shall be a woven edge like a uh, like a collar around this opening, so that it will not tear. Make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarn around the hem of the robe, with gold bells between them. And the gold bells and the pomegranates, pomegranates are to alternate around the hem of the robe. Aaron must wear this when he ministers. The sounds of the bells will be heard when he enters the holy place before Yahweh, and when he comes out, so that he will not die. What the heck? Whole new dimension to the term I'll be there with bells on. It's same too, actually, when you read in 2842 to 43, make a linen undergarment as a covering for the body, reaching from the waist to the thigh. Aaron and his sons must wear them whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister in the holy place so that they will not incur guilt and die. What you're supposed to see here, folks, is that Appearing before God is serious business. This is life and death stuff. It's in fact, it's exactly what you're supposed to see and understand from the whole sacrificial system that Yahweh introduces for Israel at this point. It's the whole make it exactly as I say routine from Yahweh in the pattern of the tabernacle. It's not about him being a pedantic control freak. It's the requirement of Yahweh to install Aaron and his sons, the priests, wearing particular clothing, following particular practice. It's not because God was picky or prone to fits of rage. He doesn't get what he wants. He's not a bridezilla. It's all significant to teach Israel and us about the significance of who God is and the enormous problem of creating a space or a way for a holy and righteous God, a perfect God, to personally interact with a totally corrupt and sinful people. A people who are unable to take back the errors of their ancestors, namely Adam and Eve, who rejected God's rule who are able to get back to that unfiltered presence of the garden, able to live any different now in the presence. As a nation and as individuals, Israel have proven by this time, time and time again, their inability to listen to and trust Yahweh. Even while he's flexing his miraculous and gracious might before their eyes, delivering them out of Egypt, parting the Red Sea, providing food in the desert, providing water from rocks, 
Despite all this, Israel have continually grumbled and complained, even accused Yahweh of wrongdoing against them. How can Yahweh then, if that's the case, how can Yahweh, the only true God, the maximally greatest conceivable being, how can he deal rightly with Israel and pretend that doesn't matter? How can he possibly deal with Israel and not justly treat them as their treasonous behavior deserves? Do you feel the weight of the problem here? It's massively problematic. It's not that Yahweh is fickle. It's not that he's a rageaholic. It's that God is so holy and just and perfect and Israel so fallen and corrupt that God cannot maintain his perfect righteousness and pretend to overlook their imperfection as if it doesn't matter. God cannot not because of anything out there, but because of who he is, he cannot call evil good or even call it acceptable. He can't just look the other way. See, to rebel against the author of life is to choose death by definition. Do you realize that? So when Adam and Eve chose to ignore God's rule and decided to seize for themselves the right to distinguish good and evil, that is, when they turned their back on the author of life and, all, and the author of all good things, that's exactly what they got. God, in a funny way, honored their decision. They were immediately cut off from God, cut off from life, open now to evil. But at the prescribed cost. Well, Paul puts it in Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin, that is turning your back on God, it's death. That's what sin earns you. That's the wages you earn. That's what you deserve, death. Don't miss this, friends. This is so important. Because it's not just true of Israel, it's true of us. And the question's got to be then, how can God dwell with sinful people and not rightly give them what they deserve? That's just death. This is why the altars are important. This is why the altars are important in the pattern. The only way for God to dwell with Israel is if there is a just penalty of their sin and offense before God, if that is dealt with somehow. And the only just way to deal with this is for blood to be spilled, for satisfaction to be made, for a death to occur. That's God's law. But instead of killing the Israelites, I mean, corpses don't make for great relationships in my experience. So instead of killing the Israelites, Yahweh institutes a sacrificial system so that he might actually, or they might actually be able to use a substitute and a representative death to still be in relationship with Yahweh. Now there's heaps more to be explained here, but let me give you the super basic sort of overlook here. Yahweh allows for an animal to be sacrificed and an animal's blood to be presented as a substitute so that Yahweh doesn't have to kill each Israelite the moment he or she sins against him. Because let's be honest, if that were the case, no one would be left by morning. (laughs) In fact, check out the significance of the blood sacrifice in terms of the tabernacle practice of relating to Yahweh. Look at chapter 27 there, verses 1 to 8. Verses 1 to 8 actually describe the pattern of the altar in terms of of, uh, building it. It doesn't describe the precise practice of sacrifice here, but you get the uh, the, uh, idea from the design of the utensils described. We can tell that something's going to be killed. Something's going to be cooked and burnt and discarded on this altar. In fact, chapter 29, verses 10 to 12, describes the practice of slaughtering a bull at the entrance to the altar to consecrate, that is, to make ready 
the altar itself by covering it with blood. And chapter 29, verses 15 to 18, describe the sacrifice. Well, now of two rams, one again to splash the blood against the altar before burning it as an offering to Yahweh. The next ram in verse 19 to 21, in fact, let me read you this bit. What do I say? 19 to 21, take the other ram. And Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head, slaughter it, take some of its blood, and put it on the lobes of the right ear of Aaron Aaron and his sons, on the thumbs of their right hand, and on the big toes of their right feet. Then splash the blood against the sides of the altar. Sounds like a peculiar practice, doesn't it? But it points us, and it ought point you back, it might drug your memory to the Passover provision that we read in Exodus 12 and 13. It should remind us here, as it did then, that the only way that Yahweh would be able to pass over the sins of Israel was if there was a blood substitute covering them. It was the blood on the doorposts in Exodus 12 and 13 that protected Israel. And it's the blood of a sacrifice now covering Aaron and his sons, literally from head to toe, that offers them protection now. And again, if all this slaughtering and blood makes you a little uneasy or a little squeamish, that's the point. In fact, unless you've killed a cow up close, I don't think you can appreciate how much blood's involved. I used to work at an abattoir <laughs> many years ago. One of my jobs as a labourer in my first year of working the abattoir was a clean-up boy on the slaughter floor. That was about as glorious as it sounds. It meant that I had to get down on my hands and knees at time and unblock the drains under the stick hole, the space where they... Sorry if you're a bit squeamish, but anyway, I'm going I'm to do it. <clears throat> the stick hole where they actually cut the throat of the animal. I have to get down on my hands and knees and pull the fat and hair out of the drains and add enough water to the mass of congealed blood. And I'm not joking when I say that the blood jelly that was underneath the stick hole would be two foot high and probably six foot wide. I'd have to get in there and portion enough hot water into that to try to get it to go down the drains to wash it away it was horrific it doesn't do justice just to read in the bible oh they offered a sacrifice of a bull here or a couple of rams there it doesn't do justice to the blood and the mess and the smell and the sweat of the sheer physicality of performing a sacrifice and i'm not even i'm not even thinking of the huge sacrificial events described in say like one kings eight where Solomon sacrifices 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep. Can you imagine the carnage, the smell, the cleanup? And that's the point. Human sin against a perfect God is not a trifling matter. It's incredibly ugly. It's incredibly smelly. It's incredibly messy. It's incredibly problematic to deal with. And yet God, in His mercy deals with it god in his mercy allows for a family of priests to act as mediators on behalf of the nation of israel he allows for these priests to make sol- a symbolic sacrifice first in his place and then according or on the on behalf of the people according to yahweh's pa- uh, pattern and practice so that each individual israelite doesn't have to go through this whole bloody rigmarole i'm not swearing there this whole bloody rigmarole themselves time and time again, every time they sin. And God does this not because he's capricious and mean. He does it because he wants to dwell with his people, despite their horror. He's chosen them out of the nations, despite their inability to respond. He wants to be in relationship with Israel. 
He wants to treat them as a treasured possession. And he wants to do this not for his good, not for God's good. He does this for their good, for their benefit. To make them, like we saw in Exodus 19, 5, 6, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. God's doing all this, not just for the sake of Israel, but in fact for the sake of all nations. So we've got to tie it back again, folks. Why does God go through this? It's actually to fulfill the promise that he made through Abraham. Genesis 12, 3, that through his family, the eventual nation of Israel, all people on earth will be blessed. And that's what, the shadow, that's what the tabernacle is foreshadowing here, folks. That's why it's still important and significant for us to read and understand. It's to see that God's intention towards sinful humanity was not to leave us fail in our sin and then judge us accordingly and damn us to hell. He'd be justified in doing that. But he didn't. And he hasn't. Rather, because of his goodness... His intention was always to create a space and a place and a pattern of relating to a fallen humanity. His intention has always been to restore the relationship damaged at the fall in the garden. God's intention has always been to genuinely rectify this in a proper, fitting and lasting fashion. That's why I say the tabernacle was just a foreshadow because it was far from optimal. It wasn't the permanent solution required. In fact, listen, listen now. Uh, who read it for us? I can't remember. Sherry, you read it for us. Yeah, Sherry read it for us before. Hebrews 9. Just listen again how the writer of the Hebrews explains the tabernacle. Have a look at Hebrews 1. Uh, sorry, Hebrews 9, 1 to 10 again. Now, the first covenant had res- regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. The tabernacle was set up in its first room in the lampstands and the tables with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place which had the gold altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of, of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry out their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room. And that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit in it was showing that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Do you see how unideal this relationship was? God living in a box behind several barriers of which only one representative could approach him and then only once a year and never without the blood of a sacrifice. And even then, notice how suboptimal it is in the sense that he was unable to satisfy even God's own justice or the sinner's conscience. Do you see that? Don't get me wrong, Israel were blessed to have God's presence among them, but the relationship is suboptimal. why Hebrews 9, 11 to 15 is just so spectacular. 
Let me sort of summarize it, if you like, because why verse, verse 11, Jesus came then as a new and better mediator, a great high priest. And he came not to enter the temple or the holy of holies behind a physical curtain in a tabernacle. No, no, this is a new place and a new pattern because Jesus ministered before God the Father as God the Son. He didn't have to go into the temple or the tabernacle to approach his Father. He could approach him on equal footing through an unblemished relationship as co-equal, as co-eternal, as God in the flesh. There is a new place in which God can be met. It's in Jesus. And verse 12, he is the new high priest because he still brought blood. Did you notice that? Verse 12, he still brings blood. He still brought blood, but it wasn't the blood of goats and calves, which were purely symbolic and completely useless to actually change anything. No, no, Jesus, though God and able to be in perfect relationship with his father on his own term, still approached the father, but this time now as a man and as a mediator and a representative of men, by the sacrifice of his own perfect blood, a full and fitting payment, sufficient to cover the sins of all humanity, past, present, and future. Now, that is an enormous statement, and I'd like to dig into that a lot, but I'm not going to. And verse 13 and 14, he now shows us a new practice, a new practice for relationship with God. It's not just the symbolic or outward cleansing of conscience like the sacrificial system in the tabernacle provided. No, Jesus' sacrifice as the God-man, as the final high priest, his sacrifice is actually able to change a person from the inside out, to genuinely cleanse guilty consciences, to genuinely change hearts so that they want to serve God. Verse 15, to usher in a new covenant relationship between us and God which brings with it the guarantee of an internal inheritance. That is a future, full and unfiltered relationship with God in heaven because Jesus has paid all the debt. I want to wrap this all up, folks. It's hard to sort of do it justice, obviously, in such a short time. But let me be blunt. This is why I'm not an Orthodox Jew. This is why there are no ritual sacrifices of bulls and goats going on here at Wagga Evangelical Church. It's because in Jesus there is a new place to meet with God There is a new pattern for that to occur. There is a new and better high priest, Jesus, and a new priesthood. We'll deal with that in two weeks' time, by the way. But when you hear priesthood, don't think men in dresses with collars, swinging senses of incense, certain pious statements. No. (laughs) There's a new priesthood, and there's a new practice for approaching God for relationship, and it's through Jesus alone. So if you were an Israelite and you tried to approach God in the tabernacle and your last name wasn't Levi and you weren't wearing bells or your magic undies and you weren't covered in or bringing lots of blood with you, you were dead. And in a similar fashion, if you think you can stand before God on judgment day, trusting your own merit or performance, you're dead. But if, here's the alternative, if by faith you trust Jesus' blood to cover you head to toe, Jesus' unblemished record to stand as yours and Jesus' death to count as payment for you. It's an entirely different story. In fact, it's why when Jesus died on the cross, we read in Matthew 27, 50 to 51, the curtain temple tore from top to bottom. Again, so much that I'd like to deal with there. The, 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 that thing that separated people from God torn from top to bottom. The way to genuine, lasting relationship with God is no longer barred. The cherubim have been dismissed. God is out of the box, so to speak. 
to be approached through Jesus alone. So if you're here today attempting to relate to God by any other means than trusting in Jesus, you're toast. That he's not only foolish but disobedient to the gracious means God has provided. Stop it and come to Jesus. Come through Jesus. And conversely, if you're sitting here today crippled by the knowledge of your own sinfulness and your own inability to approach God, that's true, but it's still foolish. Don't stay there. In fact, to stay there is to disregard the generous means provided by God through trusting Christ alone. I want to wrap it up and I want to actually finish with, uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to read Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 for you, but I'm going to sort of fashion it as a prayer. It'll, it's on the bottom of your outline, in fact, and it'll come up on the screen here. Let me finish with it though. Hebrews 4, 14 says this. In fact, we're going to pray it like a prayer. Father, thank you that we have a great, a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus Christ, your own son. So let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we know that in Jesus we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but one that who was tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet perfect and sinless. So therefore, because of him, Father, let us approach your throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive the mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. For we all desperately require it. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.